Hey, this is Jeremiah Lutimo, and this is Gates of Perception. The totality of the universe is it's just perception. And uh, it's how we perceive things. And uh, there are no facts, only interpretations. The, the psychical events are facts, are realities. And when you observe the stream of images within, you observe an aspect of the world of the world within and so you see the man who is going by the external world by the influences of the external world say society or perceptions sense perceptions thinks that he he is more valid don't relate yourself to any person anything any idea tell me Welcome to today's podcast episode. This is part two of a conversation around how we are gradually, slowly, and rapidly being conditioned to dehumanize others and to be alienated from our own humanity. So today's conversation is about how that happens in the way we relate to women, in the way we relate to the feminine in the way we are conditioned to not only dehumanize, but also reduce women to sexual objects, maids, nurses, caretakers, all of the things that deny the fullness of who they are and require them to be less of themselves. So in this conversation, I'm going to cover what I believe are the origins of this way of relating to women and the feminine, and then shift into a conversation about how I see it happening now and how it's being perpetuated now. And then lastly, talk about what I think we can do to change that and maybe things that we can do um, as individuals to not perpetuate this dehumanization. So let's just jump into it. When we think of the origins of the objectification of women, there are so many different channels that we can go through. There are so many other areas that we can explore to kind of dig into how we've gotten here, how this consumption of women and the dehumanization of women has become so ingrained into the way we see each other and the way we relate to the point where it's often even taboo to even address it, to even talk about it, or to blatantly acknowledge that it's happening. Even as a man, it's almost taboo for me to address. Like, yo, that's dehumanizing to call her that. That's kind of objectifying her if you're catcalling her while she's walking down the street because she looks good to you. Like it's kind of taboo for me to address these things. And that speaks to the culture. That lets us know that the culture has already imprinted on us. And for some reason, we've established it as a normal way of relating. So when we go against the normal, we're looked at as if we're like outsiders or saying something wrong or need to rethink or doubt what we said or what we felt was off or what discomfort we experience from that. And that just speaks to like how deep this stuff has sinked in to our, our way of relating. 
And so there's so many areas to cover with that. And I just want to explore, I think a huge aspect of what I've noticed is an origin point. I think that would be best uh, to reword is an origin point. And I think there are many origin points. And I think a lot of people listening to this conversation are also going to notice their own origin points. When I think of an origin point, I tend to think of a little girl. Like if I had a daughter today, her internalization of these ideas and these beliefs is not something that I can actually try to get her to never experience. Because the world we live in already is saturated and flooded with that level of media systems of relating that exist outside of my control. And also, she is a, she would be a daughter, meaning that she's a part of a genetic transmission from all of my mother's, my sister's, and her mother's mother's and her mother's sister's, and just that matriarchal lineage. There's a genetic transmission that is downloaded into her body, into her being, the moment she's born or the moment that she's maturing. And that genetic transmission carries all of the wounds, imprints, stories, pains, and gifts. And a part of those are going to be those limiting beliefs that come with what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a feminine being, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be successful in the world, what it means to have value as a woman or assert your value as a woman. This is what I mean that women, young girls, this is kind of inescapable. And I believe the same for myself as a man. The reason I feel it's unescapable is because the systems, like I mentioned earlier, are already in place and they're already running on autopilot to the point where they are ancestrally imprinted into us before we even have a say around whether we want to inherit that belief or not. So young girls learn to self-betray, learn to self-abandon at a very young age before they even had some kind of understanding around values and beliefs and relationship dynamics and all of these things, they learn to do it very early because of what they're programmed and socialized and conditioned to accept, tolerate, and believe is the way in which they create value in their lives and relate to the world. And so with that understanding, now traveling back, I think this wasn't really the way in which everyone related to each other. But I think there are certain systems that started to be in place. There are certain roles that started to be expected of people to embody uh, or to take on and certain expectations that just became normalized. And so when we think back, we have to look at all these systems of authority like religion, governments, politics, and education systems. These are the systems of authority that kind of bleed in and shape our culture and shape our society. And also we're also shaping these, but they have a very big say in like what we approve of, what we do and how we relate to one another. And so when we look at it through the religious lens, there is a very large or obvious dehumanization of women, a reduction of the feminine. 
and that's prevalent in the lack of feminine figures in the Bible. Like I read through the Bible all of the time and there's not that many female figures. And I'm like, could God only speak to men? Does the divine only download and channel through men? And I highly, highly doubt that. But I'm like, why are most of the books written by men? Why are most of the saints that are promoted, they're men? Even when I think of God and how God is referenced in these texts, it is only speaking of the masculine aspect of God as a heavenly father and these other components that include the feminine, the divine feminine aspect of God are kind of left out. And there are verses in the Bible that talk about the queen of heaven. But again, there's not much representation. There's not much text that's dedicated to that. You have to really dig like, and I mean dig, you know, to find out the relationship that Yeshua Christ had with Mary Magdalene. You have to dig. You have to go into the Nakamadi scriptures, which is a which is a book that was the remaining chapters and books that were left out of the Bible. And so when you go into the Nakamadi scriptures, you find the story of Mary, you find books of Thomas, other words and messages and prophetic visions and sharings that came from Christ that were left out of the Bible. But inside it, you'll find the story and a, a book written by Mary. And so there is an obvious reduction of the feminine within the religious structures. And that is written in not just the scriptures themselves, but the figures that we see preaching, being channels of God, being channels of divinity. It's like there's an obvious rejection of the feminine being in those positions. And Anytime a woman has ever stepped into those positions, you know, she was quickly shunned. She was quickly shamed. She was quickly attacked, even stoned to some extent. When you look into the Nag Hammadi scriptures and you read about the story of Mary, you find out that she, she was supporting and even essentially financing Yeshua's journeys and, and travels. And there was a lot of jealousy from the disciples. If you look into it, there's a lot of jealousy from the disciples that's kind of written in these stories where they're seeing a woman in this position that's literally financing their trips, their expeditions, their ventures. And that brought a lot of discomfort. And so much of what we accept, even in the religious and spiritual context, is usually through a masculine frame. There are powerful, powerful speakers today that are men. There is Arya Shanti. I believe that's how you say his name. But he's a powerful spiritual speaker. And people ask, who is your guru? Like, who taught you all of this? Where did you learn all this from? And he had a woman that was his spiritual master. But there was no type of investigation into who this woman was. How did she become the spiritual master that she is? She was like a mother of, I think, like six kids or something. But her voice wasn't like amplified after seeing that, whoa, this is the student that you have 
matured and we love his message. We love his teachings. But I would be super eager to figure out who you are and how you came to teach these things, right? Because, of course, the master is always going to be far more developed than the student. But there was no interest into his teacher. And there are many, many other stories like this where there are prophetic beings, men that are in positions that are actually being instructed are being initiated, that are learning from their feminine counterpart. And there's no type of, oh my God, I need to figure out who this woman is. Let's give her a platform to speak. And that speaks to the lack of room that we provide for the feminine voice, just in our culture, in our society, in our way of relating. But coming back to this lens of religion, I think from this, there has been a subjugation of women because now these men that are constructing and determining what is placed in the Bible, what is discussed and what is appropriate to discuss have taken a story that we believe is our origin. And that story is Adam and Eve. And I have taken that to place the feminine in a certain position. Being a child and growing up in a culture that constantly tells you that there was a woman that was born from the rib of a man, and then that woman did something that led to the downfall of all of humanity because she was tempted, that programs something in you. Especially if you buy into it, that programs something in your parents, especially if they bought into it. And the way they relate to themselves and the way they're going to relate to others. And also, if you're buying into the God is a father, an old man in the sky with a long beard and sitting on a beautiful throne, you're also going to not be able to see the feminine in its true power. Because there's this imbalance of recognition where the masculine powers are recognized, but the feminine powers go unnoticed. And anytime they even peek or try to give voice, they're immediately shunned, shamed, or silenced. Now, this slowly leads into what we now call purity culture, to where women, based on this religious understanding, they are often told that their worthiness is based on their virginity, their obedience and submission to the masculine. So it was actually taught that a girl to be considered worthy for her future husband, she had to remain a virgin until her wedding day. So the measure of her value was actually founded upon this one thing, her virginity. And in so many cases, the father would actually take it upon himself to guard and safeguard his daughter's virginity. And this is how you get the purity ring or going to purity balls where the father would actually dance with his daughter. And this would be like her essentially pledging to remain sexually abstinent or celibate um, until marriage, right? And so she found her man. 
And so then when she would get married, he would essentially give her away. And her virginity and her body would be a gift to the man that she was with, the man that she chose to marry, or often didn't even choose to marry. Like her father most likely chose the man for her. And so this is still happening in other ways, in a lot of ways, some that are subconscious, but others that are very obvious and prevalent as genital mutilation with young girls in Kenya. This is a little graphic, but they're they're mutilated. Their clitoris is mutilated. And so what happens is that this is to prepare them for their future husband. And so the girls that reject this are actually rejected by their own families because the father and the family look at her as not caring about the family. Because what happens is once a girl undergoes that, that means that she's ready for her husband. No matter what age, this girl could be 13, she could be 16, but it means that she's ready for her husband. And so once he accepts her as his wife, the father gets, the family, the father gets all of these offerings. The guy gives them five goats. He gives them maybe a piece of land, a certain set of resources to essentially say thank you or to pay for the daughter, like receiving their daughter. And so that's why I mentioned girls that reject this process are isolated from their communities. There is a refugee center that I've spoken to that has that has taken in women that have escaped this mutilation because they didn't want it to happen. They didn't want that experience for themselves. And what happens was they were kicked out of their homes. And often sometimes the families hunt down the daughters because it's seen as defiance, it's seen as disrespectful. And so they hunt down the daughters and attempt to kill them. So these, these young girls have to escape. And so thank God there's refugee centers that take them in and um, support them in uh, their recovery, uh, their maturation and kind of coming into their womanhood and into society and things like that. So just in this understanding, you can see how we have learned to see women as commodity, as, as objects, and that this other idea that a woman's body does not belong to her, it belongs to everyone but her. So when women lose their virginity, they're shamed for it, while men are actually encouraged. Men are actually shamed for not losing their virginity early enough. You have movies like The 30-Year-Old or 40-Year-Old Virgin. This is a, a shame tactic. Like, dude, you're 40, you're still a virgin. You don't see movies talking about the 40-year-old woman that's a virgin. No, everyone's praising her. Everyone thinks she's amazing. Everyone's like, wow, okay, great. Everyone sees her as a prize. And so this, I want to now lean into how this purity culture that we have where we teach women that they are responsible for men's inability to regulate their own emotions, to control their own thoughts, to control their own urges and desires. When we make women responsible for that, we not only reduce them to objects or sexual objects, we also perpetuate rape culture so rape culture and purity culture are two sides of the same fucking coin when you tell women that wait you can't wear that outside because you're going to induce impure thoughts in a man you know tighten up wear a sweater 
lower your dress, you're also simultaneously telling her that when a man can control his urges, when a man has no sexual discipline, control over himself and his emotions, he is justified in enacting violence on your body. So I really, really want to emphasize this religious piece because when you are saying that what you're saying is true because it's been ordained by God, by the divine, you can justify literally anything. Because based on our understanding of the world, there is no power greater than the divine. So if I'm saying on behalf of God, this is law, this is reality, this is how we should relate, this is how women should be, and I'm saying that on behalf of God, on behalf of heaven, I've received this divine message, I've received this divine creed, and this is how the world should be. I can justify literally any fucking thing. Now you can see how religion becomes a political power. And when you merge politics and religion, you merge religion and state, you simultaneously merge religion and science. Because when you dig into science, it actually contradicts. There's a completely biological reason for why a woman being born from a man's rib is actually not rooted in anything. It's not grounded in any type of truth or any biological evidence that we have today as human beings from millions of years of development. We have never seen anybody coming out of the rib of a man. Every person here on this fucking planet came out of the womb of a woman. So when religion these are the seeds of misogyny. These are the seeds of objectification. These are the seeds of domination and dehumanization, especially the fact that they continue to go unchecked. This is where you get the corruption. This is how it also becomes cultural norms. This is how it becomes social norms, expectations that we have on each other relational dynamics that we perpetuate. This is also how you have men expecting certain things from women, being upset when a woman has had sexual experiences, being upset when a woman voices her needs, speaks up for herself, advocates for herself, maybe boldly challenges her partner. These are the seeds. This is where those seeds are planted. So notice that every guy you've ever noticed that was very misogynistic and kind of embody this level of military masculinity, this domineering presence about him, he was very religious. Like he had a very religious conviction behind what he was saying, why he was saying it the way he was saying it, why he felt this was justified. There was always a religious tone to what he was saying. I invite you to investigate any man that you've ever seen in that domineering patriarchal energy had some very, very deep religious dogmatic beliefs. And even if they weren't his, you'll find out that maybe somebody in his household imposed those ideas on him. So the reason I wanted to cover this origin point is because our relationship with the divine supersedes all relationships. 
And because of that, it also determines how we relate to other people. The way we relate to God, the way we relate to our creator, determines how we're going to relate to other people. If I learn that my creator is a man, and he lives in the sky, and he creates rules and laws, and everyone has to follow them, and he's very abusive with his power, but he loves me unconditionally, but I learned that he's a man. Okay, there is something about myself that I begin to believe unconsciously in that moment, if I buy into this. And for a woman, there is something that she might also buy into. Because again, if she's believing that presence that controls her life, the presence that creates the universe is masculine, on some level, she's going to give into her own subjugation. Because again, the energy that's dominating her, that created her, was a man. And there's no balance brought to that. It manifests in very, very destructive ways. So now I want to shift into the piece around how this looks like today, this dehumanization, this objectification, and how we're perpetuating it through different things, especially through social media. So as I shared, because these are the origins of how we've come to relate, it means that our parents, our previous generations have bought into this. And so when our parents buy into this, they also simultaneously expect us to buy into it. And what I mean by that is that many of us have mothers that lived in generations where it was all about appearance. It was all about how kind she was, how well she kept the home. Her value was determined by how good of a mother she was. And any type of complaint, any type of dissatisfaction with her life, any type of desire for something more was seen as rebellious. So a lot of us come from mothers and grandmothers that were told and conditioned to suppress their feelings and not show their pain, not challenge their husbands, expected to stay at home and take care of the kids. And even if they went outside to work, they had to be in positions of caretaking still. Right. And that looked like them being nurses, them being maids, them also being secretaries or assistants to somebody. Right. And this also still kept them in the frame of femininity that was culturally accepted and approved. So for many of our mothers, their humanity was a liability, like their discomfort around having to take care of three, four kids all of the time, their discomfort around having to. Uh, mother, their husbands, their pain, their difficult emotions that they were going through, their desire for rest, all of that was a liability because it took away from the polished, perfect image of who they were supposed to be and who they were expected to be. And so when you have a generation of women that are born from this expression of womanhood, this expression of motherhood, and then we have sons that are raised by this expression of womanhood, this expression of motherhood, what you get is women that are more concerned with appearance rather than truth, more concerned with image and roles rather than depth and connection. And so when you have sons that are born from these mothers, you have men that grow up and 
value obedience and submission and the willingness to self-sacrifice and mother over a woman's authenticity and her fullness and the quality of her depth. So now coupling this with social media and the rise of social media, what you get is that women are now groomed by the toxic nature of social media to continue to reduce themselves to a body part, to continue to reduce themselves to just their appearance alone, rather than the truth and the depth of who they are. Placing more value on her body, on her appearance, on her face, on her makeup, hair, whatever it is, placing more value on that than her humanity. This is how we've continued the ongoing dehumanization and commodification of women. Because now we're on these platforms and we are free to consume women. Nobody's appreciating the value of a woman. Nobody's appreciating these little details of her beauty. No, we're consuming. And so the culture we have today and we've had for a while, continues to romanticize, glorify, and eroticize female suffering. Because as I just shared earlier, this tendency to value appearance over truth, image over depth, is a survival strategy. When you think of your mothers being in that state where they had to be polished, they had to be perfect, they had to present themselves a certain way, that was an attempt to survive. That was a societal survival strategy that they developed. That wasn't authentic. That wasn't coming from their freedom. That was coming from certain restrictions that were placed upon them. So now we have us consuming this content on social media, and we're not even noticing that this is something that is just programmed into women at a very young age to see themselves or to determine their value based on what they can give somebody, based on what they can give a man. And that's how you get women that are 16, 17, 18, very young, that are immediately rushing to get surgery on their body, to have implants inside of their bodies, to have all of these procedures done to them to enhance the quality of their image, to enhance the quality of their appearance so that they can be more valuable or worthy to some other person's expectations or some other person's needs. And it's unconscious is what I'm saying. Like when you actually look at it through the ancestral imprint, women are conditioned to not see that their bodies belong to them. This is how you have women that are in marriages for years and do not have satisfying sex. This is how you get this number that's 80% of women that are saying that they're not experiencing any orgasm during sex with their husbands. Because if I don't see my body as belonging to me, but belonging to others, I'm also going to sacrifice my pleasure because my body is not mine. So how can my pleasure be mine? How can my sexuality be mine? It exists for the consumption of others, right? That's what I would believe. But again, nobody is really saying this out loud. Nobody is really thinking this every day. It is an unconscious programming that's running in the background. And now I'm a guy. I'm on the other side of that. I'm receiving that. And I'm expecting that. 
Why? Because I've also bought into this idea. I've also bought into a woman's body belongs to me. Her sexuality can only be expressed through the lens in which it meets my needs, in which it meets the male gaze. And this happens very early for men. It begins when we start to see women as trophies, indications that we are respected by other men in our lives, men such as our fathers, men such as our mentors. Because when you have a girlfriend as a young boy, you receive a lot of respect. But when you lose your virginity, you also receive a tremendous amount of praise. So again, we start to correlate our value based on what we get from women. Like based on what I'm receiving from women, my value goes up. And this is how we learn to dehumanize women because we start to see them as trophies as well. Trophies that actually help us conquer our own inadequacies. I may not feel enough as a man, but if I'm sleeping with 10, 30 women, everybody's going to think I'm that fucking guy, right? When I'm walking down the street with a beautiful woman, everyone's going to think I'm that guy, right? So I'm using women as attempt to conquer my own inadequacies now. And again, as a young boy, when prom comes up, I see prom as an opportunity to possibly lose my virginity. It's not about the interest or the value that I place on the woman. It's more about what I'm going to get from that experience of being with her. Then I start to consume a certain quality of media, a certain sense of pornographic content that I'm using to get off, to educate myself about women. And all of this shit that I'm consuming tells me nothing about women. It tells me the opposite about women. Because I don't understand as a young boy that all of these women are pretending. They're not actually experiencing pleasure. They're pretending. But I don't make that connection as a young boy. I just consume and I consume and I consume. And from that place of consumption, I'm seeing gradually women as objects. I'm reducing them to how they meet my needs. Because again, on that site that I'm on, I can change out the star, I can change out the scene, I can put her in this type of scene, I can continue to do whatever I want just to meet my needs in that moment. I'm not connecting to the value of women, I'm not connecting to the power of the feminine, I'm connecting to one dimension of a woman and that's only in the realm in which it meets my needs. So the porn industry and the content that I consume from it is perpetuating this notion that the female body is a commodity to be viewed, purchased, mistreated, abused, and trafficked for profit. This is all of the things that I'm buying into on an unconscious level as I continue to consume this content as a young boy. Now, what am I going to be doing? What am I going to expect from my partners once I get into partnership, once I become married or I take a woman out on a date or I pay for her flight to come visit me in my city. When I see women as objects, not people, not real people, I'm going to be offended by their agency. I'm going to be offended by the expression of their humanity. A woman telling me no, like a person telling me no, 
that I've learned to see as an object, as less than human, I'm going to be very infuriated by that expression of agency and individuality that this person, from my understanding, shouldn't even possess. She should be submissive. She should bow down. She should be obedient. Why is she not complying? Why is she not giving me her body when I need it? Why is she not giving me sex when I need it? Or this, this is a new one that's arising out of social media. I sent her my dick pic. Why isn't she rushing to my house? Why isn't she telling me how much she wants me? You see, this whole realm of media that we consume as boys and women consume it too. Statistically speaking, 50% of women have consumed, viewed, or watched some kind of pornographic content in their life. And for men, it's a lot higher. It's around 87%, I believe. But when you're consuming that content, male or female, you are buying into what this industry is, tr is built off of. It's built on the romanticization, the glorifying, and the eroticization of female suffering. That's what the industry is built on. It profits off of that. And people don't realize that we're getting off to women's suffering. As I said before, with our mothers being in those states, women that choose to do porn, quote-unquote choose to do porn, are not doing so out of a sense of freedom or liberation. They're doing so as a response to the unsafety that they experience in society and the lack of advantages that they have to experience some level of financial freedom. Most of these women have been pushed against the wall that feel that they have no other choice but to do this. This is a survival response. This is what I'm saying we're getting off on a woman suffering. She's not doing that out of joy. She's not doing that out of pleasure. She's doing it solely to survive. It's a fight response. Anytime we're in the state where I have to do something, it's a fight response. Where we're rushing to get that thing done out of sense of urgency because we don't feel that there's an abundance of other choices or options. We only can sense the lack of options and choices. It's a fight response. And so if we're consuming content of women being paid to have sex, is that really consent? Are we actually consuming consensual sex? Are we consuming abuse of power? Men in positions to where they have social and economic advantages over women and placing them in positions to be obedient, to be trafficked, to be consumed for other people's consumption. Like, I really want you to notice how media is impacting the way we relate to one another, especially if we have no issue with this. We, we leave these forms of media unchecked and unchallenged. Even music, like let's talk about music. The rappers that we praise in the music industry, let's talk about it. We see these women as being empowered. We see these women as being sexually liberated. And these are your top 10 artists. You have Megan Thee Stallion, you have Cardi B, you have Lotto, you have City Girls, you have uh, Sweetie, you have all of these, Nicki Minaj, you have all of these artists that have one thing in common, that they 
sexually objectify themselves through their performance, through their music videos, through their lyrics. It is written, it's, it's in the pudding, it's in the pudding. And I'm not judging the artists. What I'm saying is I'm critiquing the industry. You have to notice that these artists are in these top positions, not just because they're the best at what they do, but it's because they also willingly accept their own objectification. The women that don't, like look at the artists, the women that don't, but also have that same level of talent, skill set, and lyricism are not in those top charts. They're not getting the Grammys. Why? Because they're not objectifying themselves. The industry, again, is built on the male gaze. Men run that industry. Who are the rappers? What are the rappers talking about? They're talking about how they treat women, how they use women, how this girl and this girl this and this girl that. So again, in order to survive in that industry, in order to thrive in that industry, there's something that you have to consent to, which is your own objectification. And again, we see it as empowerment. And the reason we see it as empowerment is because for so long, women have been controlled by religious institutions. What they chose to do with their bodies was determined by that religious institution. So to see women willingly choosing to be open about their sexuality, to talk about what they do with men, to openly express themselves in such a manner, we see that as empowerment. But again, we have to notice the industry that they exist within. It's just a bigger cage is what I'm saying. Just because it has more room, more resources inside that cage, and maybe shiny gold bars, it's still a cage. It's still a fucking cage. And there's definitely been a cultural shift because the nature of rap and hip hop was never really like this. The top artists were Lauryn Hill, Queen Latifah, uh, Missy Elliott, all of these different artists that weren't actually doing what the women today in this industry are doing. Like you would go to a Lauryn Hill concert. She had all her clothes on, bro. Queen Latifah dressed like a dude. Like she wore what she wanted to wear and didn't have to glamorize herself before a concert. And she spoke against misogyny. When you listen to the lyrics of Lauryn Hill, she spoke against the industry. She tackled these things. MIA, a wonderful artist, tackled these issues that women are facing today. But again, there's been some kind of shift where these rappers are no longer promoted. They're no longer validated. They're no longer seen and consumed at the rate that they used to be. So this really brings me to my solution to all of this that's happening today is I feel for myself and the way that I've learned to not give into this culture of objectification when it comes to women is to manage and take control over the media that I consume. And that means for me, I completely eliminated porn out of my life. Because I knew that wasn't supporting me in the ways in which I valued women. It wasn't supporting me in seeing women the way in which I knew I wanted to see them. The way in which I knew I wanted to connect with them. It wasn't supporting that. I could not fucking deny that. It was not supporting that in any sense. 
And that also required me to go down the list into other soft core expressions of porn that I consume throughout my day. And that was on social media, the women I would follow, the videos I would watch, the media I would consume, the artists that I would listen to and what they talked about in regarding to women and their sexuality. I had to cut all of that out so that I could give my mind a respite, a break from constantly being bombarded with images and messages that inform me that women aren't valuable or aren't sacred beyond what they can do for me. In order for me to break free from that, I had to notice what was preventing and hindering me from stepping into that level of connection with myself. Like it's really a connection with myself, right? And then women, you know, in my life experience the byproduct of that connection, but it had to begin with me. So to anyone listening, it, I feel as individuals, the power we do have and the control we do have is within what we choose to consume, right? Because again, like when you expand this out, and I mentioned earlier, religious contexts and systems of authority, like, okay, like those shits are, those things are big, you know? And a lot of that may be outside of your control. A lot of that may feel like you are powerless against those systems. But you have your phone. You have your device. Nobody controls what you watch. Nobody controls what you listen to. But you do. Nobody controls what, what people you follow, what influencers you follow, what models you follow, what you do in your spare time, in your private time with yourself. That is, it's completely in your control. So I think when we start to change the way we relate to media, there is a natural shift in how we'll relate culturally. Because I've even noticed for myself, not watching porn for almost two years now, I relate to women on a whole different scale. I even saw this tweet that mentioned that, you know, women should have a standard to where they only date men that don't watch porn. And I was like, whoa, that makes sense. Because watching porn comes with all of these inherited beliefs about a woman's body that are naturally and inevitably going to be projected on the partner. Like men don't realize that they're projecting what they witness on porn and what porn perpetuates in their mind around masculinity and femininity. They're bringing that and they're carrying that shit into the relationship. So I think it's important that we just focus on what we can control. And I know for myself, controlling and managing the media I've consumed, I watch and I listen to has definitely, definitely shifted the way I relate to the feminine. And I've swapped out. So I don't just want to share like, stop doing this, but start doing this piece, right? So for me, once I've started changing those things, I started making sure that I was reading books written by feminine authors like Roxane Gay, Bell Hooks, all of these women that were talking about the female experience and the pain that they experience at the hands of men, at the hands of uh, patriarchal societies and structures. 
this helped me reprogram myself or essentially program myself to a programming that I'm okay with, that I value, that I fucking want myself to be programmed to think. So having an alternative form of media that supports you in unpacking this shit that we've all consumed on some level. And so that might also be consuming on social media. You know, if you're a guy consuming images of the feminine being or the feminine body that isn't in a way that continues to perpetuate your consumption or your dehumanization of women. And for women, if you're consuming women that only perpetuate your sense of comparison, your sense of imperfection, or your sense of inadequacy, change that. Find different forms of media, different empowered women that are connecting to themselves in a way in which you have not seen before, in a way that you didn't think was even possible for you. So that's my piece on that. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. If you found value from this, feel free to share it online. Let me know your thoughts. Share with me in the DMs. Um, Feel free to leave a review of how this episode impacted you. And I'll see you guys on the next one, part three, which is going to be about how we dehumanize men. And so with that, I wish you guys a beautiful day and a beautiful evening. I'll see you guys on the next one. Peace.